You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everyone. Peter Maravellis here. Tonight on City Lights Live, we are delighted to have back in our orbit Elif Batuman celebrating her newly published novel, Either Or, brought to you by Penguin Press. She'll be reading some excerpts and discussing the book with the wonderful Lucy Corrin. City Lights Live is the official virtual reading series of City Lights booksellers and publishers. It is brought to you by the fine offices of the City Lights Foundation. The series follows in the footsteps of our in-store calendar. We continue to feature the works of authors we know and love through readings, discussions, and forums moving through the summer season and into the fall. As always, we like to uh, make the customary land acknowledgement at the beginning. We are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatushaloni peoples also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We'd like to take this moment to offer to those who have come before us as stewards of the land, our respect. Elif Batumat is no stranger to City Lights. We've been fan of her work for a long, long time. We've had the distinct pleasure of hosting her live in store in our fabulous poetry room when she was living in the Bay Area. We actually used to see her at our events. So it's a delight once again to see her, albeit virtually, but a pleasure nonetheless. Elif's first book, The Idiot, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction in the UK. She is also the author of The Possessed, Adventures with Russian Books, and The People Who Read Them, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in Criticism. She has been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 2010. Joining her in conversation tonight is Lucy Corin. Lucy is the author of the recently published novel, The Swank Hotel, as well as the story collections, 100 Apocalypses and Other Apocalypses, and the (laughs) entire predicament, and the novel Everyday Psycho Killers. Her work has appeared in conjunctions, Harper Magazine, Plowshares, Bomb, Tin House, amongst others. She's the recipient of the American Academy of Arts and Letters Rome Prize. She teaches at the University of California at Davis and makes her home in Berkeley. So please join us now in giving a warm welcome to Elif Batuman and Lucy Corin. Welcome to City Lights. Yay. <laughs> hey, thanks, Peter. Thank you so much, Peter. Peter, City Lights, as you know, was my first live event ever. And I was like a baby and I was terrified and everyone was so nice and I couldn't believe I was at this legendary place. So it means a lot to me to be here, even in the ether. And thank you, Lucy, so much for doing this. Well, I'm so glad to be here. Um, I will confess that I'm a little nervous about this one, not just because I'm nervous by nature, but because (laughs) I know that you have um, such a devoted group of fans and then a lot of them are here and I just got on the bus this summer. So I'm asking my questions and coming to this as like a new devoted reader. And I wanna make sure that everybody who's here knows that um, I am really most excited to um, hear what you want to hear. And so as soon as you have questions in mind, go ahead and post them in the chat or save them up to the end because we're going to leave time for you to ask your smart questions um, after we um, hear a little bit from the book and have as uh, as good a conversation as I can muster past my little vibrating hands. Um, so um, do you want to start by reading a section from the book? Yeah, um, so I usually just read from the beginning. Um... So I'm going to start on page five. So uh, the only thing you need to know is, you know, like (laughs) she got to school. That's where she is. Uh, 
Svetlana got to campus the day after me, though it felt like years. I had already slept the night in my new room, eaten breakfast and lunch in the cafeteria, and made numerous trips back and forth to the storage facility, having the same conversation over and over. How was your summer? How was your summer? How was Hungary? I was dissatisfied by the vagueness of my own answers. I still hadn't figured out the right angle. How was Hungary? Lakshmi asked at lunch with a conspiratorial sparkle. Did anything happen? Notwithstanding my strong feeling that a lot of things had happened, I answered the question truthfully in the sense that I knew Lakshmi intended it. Nothing had happened. Svetlana asked me the same question that evening when we met at her warehouse-like suite in New Quincy and sat on beanbag chairs under an Edward Hopper poster and talked about everything that had happened since the last time we had spoken, when I had been in a phone booth in the Hungarian village and Svetlana had been at her grandmother's house in Belgrade. I told her how I had finally called Ivan in Budapest, how he had showed up with a canoe and we had sat up all night at his parents' house. Did anything happen? She asked in a lazier, more amused voice than Lakshmi's, but meaning the same thing. Well, like that one thing didn't happen, I said. Oh, Tselin, Svetlana said. When Ivan first told me about the summer program in Hungary, he said I should take my time to think about it because he didn't want to force me into anything. Svetlana said that if I agreed to go, Ivan was going to try to have sex with me. This was a possibility I had never previously considered. I daydreamed about Ivan all the time, imagining different conversations we might have, how he might look at me, touch my hair, kiss me. But I never thought about having sex. What I knew about having sex didn't correspond to anything I wanted or had felt. I had tried on multiple occasions to put in a tampon. Tampons were spoken of by older or more sophisticated girls as being somehow more liberated and feminist than maxi pads. I just put one in and forget about it. I felt troubled by the implication that a person was constantly thinking about their maxi pad. Nonetheless, every few months, I would give tampons another shot. It was always the same. No matter what direction I pushed the applicator, however methodically I tried all the different angles, the result was a blinding electric pain. I read and reread the instructions. Clearly I was doing something wrong, but what? It was worrisome, especially since I was pretty sure that a guy, that Ivan, would be bigger than a tampon. But at that point, my brain stopped being able to entertain it. It became unthinkable. Svetlana said I had better think about it. You wouldn't want to end up in that situation and not have thought about it, she said reasonably. And yet it turned out there wasn't much to think about. It was immediately obvious that if Yvonne tried to have sex with me, I would let him. Maybe he would be able to tell me what I had been doing wrong and it wouldn't be as terrible as trying to put in a tampon. Um, I'm gonna stop there, thank you. What's so remarkable about hearing that passage again is that it kind of epitomizes to me one of the 
the gorgeous characteristics of your work, which is that everything comes off as offhand, as immediate, as if the ideas and the insights are happening in the moment as you're reading them. Um, and then I can hear when you read that passage that almost every single line of that passage is taken up and explored in the body of the book. Um, it's not a maybe a question so much as like a compliment and an observation. Um, and like one of the things that I loved so immediately about your work was its insistence on an immediacy of experience, even as you're totally engaged in reflection, right? That like you're you're balancing constantly between watching your characters think and watching your characters be in the world. And mm -hmm. um uh, I, I don't know, like I wasn't, I wasn't going to start there, but it may, maybe, maybe the question about that is, um, like, I don't know, like it, maybe it's just a writer question. Um, that's like, like, how do you, how do you sort of make, make your promises come true in a book that is so focused on not feeling made in that way? Oh, I mean, thank you for that really generous, really generous read. Um, and compliment thanks. I, uh, this book is a little bit, I mean, I haven't written that many books. I guess I wrote The Idiot, which um, th this is my second novel. The, the Idiot I wrote in my early twenties and I had this experience of editing it in my, when I was 38. Um, and mm -hmm. it was about my first year of college. It was quite closely based on things that happened in my first year of college. This book, I had the, um, I, I had the idea for writing it, or I felt the sort of like necessity of writing it as right as I was starting to do promotional stuff for the first one. And I was at answering questions and having to, you know, having conversations like this where people make you actually think about what the book was about. And I, I realized all of these different, and, and it was a, it was a product of that. And it was at the, the moment that that was happening was the end of 2016, the beginning of 2017, which was right when Trump had been between when Trump was elected and when Trump took office. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I, I, I made the decision to write the book and Me Too happened and Me Too and the Christine Blasey Ford's testimony were a big part of the decision to write the book. It was a lot of going back to that time and unpacking how I got the ideas that I ended up with. Um, it, it was a lot about re, um, so like a lot of women, I was going through this period of telling my past to myself using different language than I had before. And I, I, and I was also in this new relationship that was a not heterosexual relationship for the first time. And I, that was a huge, huge kind of cognitive shift for me because so much of my identity was tied up with not just like writing and literature, but specifically with these like 19th century Russian novels where that were about love and death and, and love was this heteronormative, heter it was, it had really defined a huge amount of my, so I was going through all of this like rethinking. And then another big part of that was the reception of the idiot and, um, a spoiler if there's anyone who hasn't read The Idiot, but uh, nobody has sex in it. And this was um, really confusing to a lot of people, not a lot of people, but a, like vocal minority of, of readers um, and, and some reviewers. And there was almost a sense that people didn't know. I don't know, some people were kind of angry about it or confused or, or frustrated. And at first I thought that was such a weird response to have. And then as I was, as I was you know, thinking about it, I started to realize this feels really familiar and that actually when I came back to school in my second year of college, I felt that way that, 
and I remembered specifically that question of nothing happened, like did, did anything happen and having to say nothing happened. And that just seemed like a really productive in into the question of like, what counts as narrative in a woman's life? Like, when do we think that something, what, what is enough to, to make, you know, cause I was really remembering how much I wanted to be a writer at that time in my life and how much I thought that was tied up with having the right kind of experiences for a writer and that those would involve love in certain ways and that, that, you know, I had to find a way to make my life into a narrative. And it really was an extremely, like almost now it seems ludicrously narrow script that involved like, you know, penetrative intercourse in this way. And which, you know, brings you to these very literal places about, you know, using the tampon. And I, so I guess the reflection, I feel like to me, the hallmark of that time and the sort of the gift of revisiting that time is that the experiences and the reflections are so kind of tied up, like caught up in each other. And there, I guess there is a sense that the reflection happens somewhere else, like sort of afterwards and not actually in the moment but while writing it that's you get to do that you get to make it happen in the moment and get to, and I, I guess part of the question was also how to like dramatize reflection because you can't just have someone in a chair thinking the whole time and to have almost. her yeah almost almost but like to have actually but I mean the point of setting the novel then was like and, and not now because it was really it's really a novel about all of the things that I was thinking in my early 40s but I I, I was what I was really thinking about was sort of tracing the evolution of like how did I end up with these particular thoughts about what's normal and and what's good and 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 I was realizing they were formed in that period and it was kind of like a matter of like reenactment re-dramatizing those scenes like what was the conversation about lesbianism what was the what were the first conversations about sex and then I guess the quality of immediacy is just a matter of cutting a lot it's like writing and writing and writing and then cutting everything that doesn't have to do with it which was like yeah it was more than twice as long um which is actually I think cutting is sometimes presented as something kind of grim like that was how it was taught to me like murder your darlings or you have to like it, that it feels like a waste or whatever but actually once I was able to let go of that way of thinking of it, the cutting is the most fun part because it just feels like you're curating like a museum, like you're, you get to make this show with just the best, most special things in it. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'll pick up on two things that I think come that, 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 that last bit reminded me of. Um, one is, uh, uh, so the, the broad scope of my questions are memory and history. So I'm thinking about like one of the, um, the acknowledgments that it, from the idiot that I kept thinking about in the second book too was you, I, I don't, I don't remember exactly how it went, but you said something about like, you referred to what sounded to me like a revelation happening in the writing process when you realized you were writing a historical novel, uh, yeah. right? And then that connected to me in the second book, because while I was really interested in the choices you made about making a sequel, right? Like, what do you stick mm -hmm. with and what changes in the next volume? One of the things that I noticed is that uh, the iceberg, which you criticize in the first book, kind of rises in the second. And I thought that one of the ways that it rose is that you um, you allow her past in, in a way that mm. it's almost, almost obsessively eradicated yes. from, from the first book. So I guess I'm thinking about um, history and the uh, um, and if your sense of writing historical novel shifted in, in mm -hmm. writing the two, and if maybe that had something to do with the timing of looking at these books. And I guess I'll add one more idea in there that I was thinking about a lot, which is how um, 
how uh, the first book is in some ways stuff that happened that is, she's always thinking, right? But she doesn't mm -hmm. really process what's happened to her. And then the second book is a lot of mm -hmm. conscious or unconscious processing of what happened in the first book mm -hmm. that she didn't even know what happened. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> right. And then, and then like that paralleling the kind of um, relationship with writing that you were just describing, like that network of ideas is really interesting to me. Oh, wow. What a beautiful, I, I haven't thought of any of that. That's, mm. that's, it really resonates. Thank you. Um, yeah. The, the historical fiction. So I guess there were a bunch of phases of writing the, the idiot. Like I first wrote it um, in my early twenties about the year I was 18 and 19. So it, it just felt like I was right. And it was like a first book and I, you know, I was still so young and it, it just felt like I, I was just writing down unmediated reality. And then by the time I reread it, it was, you know, 20 years later when I was 38, 37 and so much had changed. And I, maybe there's, maybe there's 20 year periods that don't feel it. No, I think any 20 year period would feel like it, but this one, with this one, it was really the technology and the attitude toward email. And um, it, it was just so, it was so different. And then I realized like, oh, this is now it's a work of historical fiction. Um, I, I was really conscious of leaving her past out of the idiot. So also the, I guess, I feel like the journey that you're, you're kind of picking up on is actually the journey of my therapy, um, which I had just started when I was editing the idiot. And, and I mean, I think that that's, if I hadn't just started therapy, um, because kind of both the idiot and either or have like people are constantly telling Celine like you should go into therapy and she's like why are people tell keep saying that and then hilarious <laughs> aborted therapy sessions dotting yes right? yes, yeah. <laughs> yes which I had I had those and I was like this is bullshit like what so I wanted to put that in too because you know all of these things that I now encounter that like I feel so much happier now than I did then and and part of it is because I, you know, I now feel like I have this queer identity that I feel much more conscious in. I've benefited hugely from therapy. I now have a different way of viewing politics. And like, none of this is stuff that didn't exist, you know, in the nineties. It's not like I grew up under a rock where I didn't have access to so like, I, I wanted to like dramatize how I encountered those things and they didn't seem right for me. Like in the therapists, I had these, yeah, like hilariously bad um, encounters, but yeah. I, when I when I was actually growing up, like when I was the age that she is in the idiot in the first year of college, I really thought that my past had nothing to do with me and my family's past had nothing to do with me. And I was like, you know, and, and, and either or she says like, oh, you know, everyone here is so obsessed with their parents. Why do they keep thinking about their parents? I guess like maybe other people's parents are really influential on them, but they're just not that influential on me. And I, that's an idea that I, you know, learned to unpack through through years of therapy that actually you know that because you're born into the world and that's just the world you know and your parents are just you're like that's what people are and then you get to a certain place and you live through historical change and you understand the historical conditions that were operating on your own childhood that of course you had no way of understanding as such then and it becomes very interesting to try to unpack that so I was really conscious of bringing her childhood and bringing her parents situation and um the kind of um, like a lot of the, the the stuff that would be relevant to therapy if you were going to do it is in the second book and less so in, in the first book. She's really like consciously avoiding that. Um, and I I think it's because I just understood I understood how important it was. I understood also why I had resisted it before. How 
Um, so I, I gave Selim either or this, uh, her, her parents have this kind of like messy divorce and there's a custody suit. And I really had the experience at the time of people constantly telling me like, um, like looking at me with, and I was an only child and like people would just look at me with anxiety and be like, you know, are we ruining you? Like, you're gonna be ruined. You've, you have never seen a good family life. So now you're not gonna be able to recreate it. And I was like, I wish these people would stop like overvaluing their role in my life. And like, I, I would go to, to talk to a therapist and they'd be like, well, tell me about your parents. And it would be someone my parents' age. And my, I already felt like my parents thought that the only important people were them and that I was some kind of trivial accessory. And I was like, this is just gonna go on my whole life with my parents being the most important people and I'm not important. And it just made me think like, I don't know, I have no patience for Hamlet because he cares about his parents too much. I'm just like my own person and I'm going to go on this project of self-creation. And then, but of course, you know, the project of self-creation is constrained by all the things that you think the parameters of what you think are possible. And those are formed in these ways by, you know, by history and family, by what you see. And it's only, I've now found it, I guess what I, what I experienced is, as confining before and as telling me that I wasn't important, I now feel like it's liberating and freeing to, that I'm understanding myself better and I'm understanding where I got the ideas that I got, where they came from. And that gives me more freedom to change them and move away from them. So that's, I think that's when trajectory that's in the two books. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other, another, one of the other primary um, pleasures of the way that these books are written for, for me is that I felt like I was reading a document of um, like how learning happens mm -hmm. and, and being able to, um, and, and, and so the effect on me of like, watching uh um so let, i made a little list uh that there that like um qualities of the prose around this idea of it being a document of learning um that you have these sudden as if offhand profundities you have mm -hmm. striking and funny images that don't change the pace of the book and it feels like it's about learning and becoming educated and it makes me feel this longing a longing for a feeling which is linked to nostalgia for, mm. for learning. Mm -hmm. um, but this combination of the profundities and striking funny things that like don't stop the pace of things moving um, mm -hmm. made me wonder about the relationship between humor and learning. Like, oh, so interesting. And, right? And I started thinking about like that, the phrase getting it. And of course, like uh, everybody who's read a second knows that you take phrases and words and you turn them and you turn them and you turn them. So I felt like one of the, like getting it was like under the surface of, mm -hmm. of, a, of a lot of the, um, just like, uh, yeah, under the surface of a lot of the text was this idea of like ways of getting it, like and getting mm -hmm. it in that brutal way too, because mm -hmm. I noticed that like, well, the other thing that changes from this book, from the last book to this book is that you do go a lot darker with her. Mm -hmm. And that's another, it's another kind of, of getting it. Um, yeah. And so sure. I guess I wonder about the relationship to those things like learning and darkness and funniness. Oh, wow. I love that. I love the getting it point. Wow. So cool. You're like, you're a dream. You're a dream reader. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> well, this is why it's terrible to not be able to hang out after. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. I'm going to drink. Um, yeah. The document of how learning, I guess that that's, 
that's something that I've really been thinking about. I think a lot of it, I mean, a lot of the things that you're mentioning are sort of a product of like getting to a certain age to the, the nostalgia. I do feel that this book was written with um, nostalgia for the time of life, like for the way that the time of life when you're so receptive and you're learning so much from everything, like every single thing that happens is like you're using it to draw a conclusion about the world because like your body of knowledge is so kind of small that everything counts so much. And by now it takes so much more for something to sort of like get into the coconut that it, I, yeah, I do feel nostalgia for that. I also wrote this book at a time of like realizing the extent of like benighted ideas that I had that people now don't necessarily have. And it, there's a certain amount of joy in that. And then there's a certain amount of regret that I, you know, I always like, I wish I was born later, or I, I wish I could go back in time and, and tell that person all of these things. And, and I, I do feel like that was a part of it. A lot of it was, um, I mean, the document of how learning happens was kind of, that was what made me want to write the book was I was, I was at this time and I was I was promoting this book and it, all of these political things were happening. It was weird because it happened twice. It happened first in the US, I was promoting the book at this Trump moment when everyone was completely freaked out. And then by some weird chance, it was translated into Italian and I, I went to Italy to, to you know uh, present the Italian translation. And just then they had sort of their Trump moment, which was the, the beginning of the far right, that Matteo Salvini was became the minister of the foreign whatever thing he became and he's like sending the refugee ships away and everyone was like it's the end of Europe and uh so people came with these kind of like why did you write a book that's what's the actual political content of your book and I had been like at that time in my life I I was so resistant to politics and so because I I just experienced politics means that I'm going to get steamrolled and everything that I think is important is going to be like steamrolled under this idea of there's something that's more important that's that that's politics and it has to do with great men and the affairs of state and so I kind of belatedly understood that like no I actually do have I've always had a political consciousness I've always had a queer consciousness I just wasn't aware of it so I was kind of like how did I not realize that I had these things how did I so it was it was a reconstructive process and 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 I was thinking a lot about you know psychoanalysis and where our actual ideas come from and 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 the idea of education and school and how like a lot of the things that we learn do happen in school, but a lot of them are like, you know, in formal classes, but a lot of them don't. And there, nobody actually talks about how do you actually learn? It, it's, I mean, we all know that you learn just as much from things that are not school as from, but how exactly, how exactly does it happen? How does the negativity bias work? How do you learn, you know, like the, the painful things more about the humor, I guess I just think that this would all be, it's interesting. I mean, the first thing that I just think of is that I, I learned everything that I learned about teaching. My, my mom is a, is a, she's retired now, but she was a professor. She taught in medical school and she's an exceptionally good teacher and she's an exceptionally funny person. And I, I think I always associated learning with humor because if it wasn't funny, you would just, that, that, that's the way in is that if it's not funny, you're, if, if, if it's not funny, it's just the power game. It's just someone who knows is like telling you who don't know. And if, if there's, once there's humor, there's like exploration and discovery. And um, I, I think when there, an absence of humor makes me feel very like threatened and alone and, um, 
I can't, I can't imagine learning it taking place without humor, but I, I don't know. Is that just, is that just me? And that's my right. experience and that's my mom, or is there something actually, because if you actually think about how humor works, I guess, I mean, it does involve some, some kind of, there has to be something new, right? Like some, some, there's some surprise or some model is being shifted or something where you thought that you were alone turns out to be some is acknowledged and, and given uh, described in some way that makes you like make something click. So it is, it is quite analogous to the process of learning. So there, there must be some, some rhyming happening. And I, I did take a pedagogy class once and um, I had to teach Russian, which was kind of a horrible irony because um, I, I speak Russian very badly, but, um, but I actually overheard that this is my humble brag. I overheard the pedagogy teacher talking to someone else and they were like, you don't have to speak Russian well to teach Russian well, just look at Elif. And I was like, <laughs> thank you. <But> she, <laughs> she, but I remember her saying that, uh, yeah, humor. And then she was also like, talk a lot about sex and talk a lot about food because people remember those things. And I think that those are all actually kind of true, but yeah. <laughs> Should we let some of the people in the chat into the conversation? Oh, yes, we should. I'm going to go through those now. All right. Did anyone write questions? Well, I'm scrolling around. I'll see what I can find. Hello, people. Hello, everyone who said hello. What counts as an idea? Oh, here's some questions. I had a little place question, too, that I can throw in with that. that okay. Other place question just All that right. I had started to write um a question about place and I started wondering if it was a spoiler to say oh. where she ends up in the second book because it's, it's that it's one of those like um you know of course that's what happens with place in the end of the book yeah but yeah. I also am like I don't think I should actually say and so maybe part of writing about I mean part of answering the question about writing about place is like um I don't know maybe like the role of place in 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 these books in terms of suspense in terms of like <laughs> you know like where's she gonna go where's she gonna go it's true that's especially in the second one because there's like she applies for a bunch of things and they could be in different places and she really is rooting for one place and then she ends up somewhere else or well yeah now I've already spoiled it um <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so yeah there were two great questions from Allison one was about writing process and one was about um writing about I think writing about places where you haven't been um I guess process <sighs> I mean, process for me, the most important thing is, has been shutting off judgment and shame. Um, and for me, that means kind of disabling the editor critic part of my brain. Um, and I guess I kind of think everyone has to game that their own way, but I, I think a lot of it is about, um, I used to think a lot about like, am I a good writer? Or am I not a good writer? Do I have talent? Do I not have talent? There's like good writers and there's not good writers. There's good writing and there's writing that's not good. And now I just feel that those categories are extremely fluid and that um, I'm not sure I actually believe that anyone is, I mean, I, I think you just have to write a lot. It's just something that you have to practice and gain facility with. And then beyond that, it's just about it occurring to you to even write the thing down that is like, you know, it's something that it's, it's about like 
I don't know, like which of your thoughts do you actually trust yourself to write down and to recognize as thoughts that you can write down? So I just think of it as like gaming sensors. And then for me, that means uh, sometimes it means forcing myself to write even when I don't feel like it and setting some kind of, you know, I, I've had periods where I was like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna write for half an hour. I'm gonna write for an hour and uh, shutting off the internet, getting one of those apps that shuts off the internet. And then not, not thinking like, oh, this sentence that I wrote, is this going to end up in the book or the article, or is this going to be one of the ones that gets cut? Not getting neurotic about things that getting cut being wasted, because then I just feel like then I get completely paralyzed. So for me, it's about generating a large flow and then sort of like printing that out and, you know, killing trees. Uh, I guess you could, you could not do that. Um, move along from that part. Uh, it, it's about then looking at all of the stuff that, that, um, that I've written and then working with that and that being a different kind of work than the generating work. Um, writing about place, I don't think I've ever written about a place that I've never been before. I have written about places that I have been to for the first time. I don't know, I just went to Tbilisi over the summer for the first time and I'm, I'm trying to write about that now. And it is, it is very hard because the, you know, there's almost something about the mind that it doesn't like to not know and wh where there's, or, you know, certainly my mind is like that. I, 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 I'm sure a lot of people are, I don't know if it's everyone or not, but that I find myself like making things up without realizing it just to make something make sense. It's hard to just kind of keep open to the reality of like what's going on and to what I know and to what I don't know and, and leaving leaving enough sort of empty space for, for those things to happen and to not automatically fill in some story. Again, I sort of feel like that it's sort of related to the process because it's kind of like a matter of momentum, like of just generating enough and um, yeah, getting to it that way. Um, are there? I see this question from Alexa about a, a perceived reticence in critics to um, to, to engage with the aspects of the book that are about queerness and whether you have thoughts about that mm. sexual violence that she experiences? You know, I, I don't read the reviews because they make me nuts. Um, I have, I do hear, hear a little bit about them and I, um, I did get a vibe from, I, I did a book tour and I talked to some people and I, I the vibe that the, the, there was one thing that I, I, strain of, of reception that, um, you know, people only tell me the good stuff, but, but even within the positive, the positive reception, it, I've got the feeling that some people, especially men were kind of, um, had read the book as like a hilarious romp or like, um, the, oh, the fun sex parts, like the, uh, actually, yeah, a, a, a male writer told me like, I really, I, I like the fun, sexy parts where she has all this sex. And I was like, oh, you know, that's interesting because I, I think this is a book about sexual trauma. <laughs> and um, I guess that, that I, I, I don't even know what to say about that. I mean, I, I had an event once where I, I kind of felt like the, the person who I was talking to felt that way about the book and had clearly really enjoyed it and read it in a generous, fun spirit, but did not really get that it's a, a book with a lot of suffering in it. And I feel like we were able to have a good conversation about that at the time. And I was able to just explain it. And then 
and they were like, oh yeah, I can totally see how, how that's the case. And then I was like, oh, I'm really good. Glad I'm, I'm running around in the world. Like, you know, explaining to people. <laughs> yeah, I get, I mean, uh, it's weird how, how, how books have, have these different lives that you, you can't completely control. Um, the queerness I was, I was kind of, um, I did, I do think of this as a queer book. Um, and I, I had a conversation with the publicist um, where I was concerned that people wouldn't understand that it's a queer book because there aren't actually any queer relationships in it really. Um, and I originally, my plan for this book was, um, it's, so it's called Either Or after Kierkegaard's Either Or, which is a, a book that's in lots of different genres. And um, the, the first half is, is arguing from one point of view and the second is from the, uh, the different opposite point of view. So my original plan for this book was it was gonna be a novel called Either Or. And the first half was going to be like this, this book was gonna be just half of it that was a novel. And the second half was going to be kind of a memoir essay that was actually going to be about um, how novels ruined my life and um, by deadening my queer and political consciousness and, and causing me to expose myself to unwelcome, uh, not unwelcome because I, I was welcoming them, but um, in retrospect, uh, avoidably painful sexual situations. Um, and that was going to be kind of an essay. And I, I, I didn't end up, the novel just took up the whole, like I, it ended up feeling much more interesting and productive to try to like invite that content to get in through the novel side. But I'm still thinking that I'm, I'm going to write a book that's going to have, you know, at first this novel was written all to kind of like, I don't know, it was almost like I was teeing up all of these little balls so I could just like slam them in the second half. And then I, I didn't end up doing that. And I still have some of that in, in my system to like really get into what compulsory heterosexuality is and, and how I think that it was working on me and what parts of the book were intended to show that. Um, I think, but you know, my fear when I decided to leave that stuff out of the book, which was partly on the editors, um, she didn't say so in so many words, but she was like less excited about the, what she'd read of the essay part than, than the novel part. And I could kind of understand how, how that was, but my fear about just publishing it as a novel was like, no one's gonna understand. They're gonna think that this is, um, that everything that happens to her is like, is fine, is okay. Because I, I actually felt like some people responded to the idiot like that. Like I, I got some reader mail that was like, oh, I had an experience that happened just like this. And I, I was feeling really shitty about it, but now I read your book and I realized that I was just living an aesthetic life and I'm, I'm on the path to becoming a writer. And, you know, partly I was like, oh, that's great. I mean, it's, that's great. But also you don't have to do that to be a writer. You know, like you could just, so I, I, I don't want to like, and part of how I wrote this book was actually in the spirit of thinking about advice and how when I was younger, I used to think that you can't actually give someone advice. You have to learn things yourself. And now I think that that's kind of bullshit. I mean, of course you have to experience certain things to learn them, but I also think advice could be given a lot better. Like advice, a lot of advice is given in a way that's like sort of preceded by, well, you're not going to listen to me, but it's, of course you don't listen, you know, or like it's given from the spirit of like, this isn't going to work. So, so I really wrote this book trying to to get at that, and um, but I'm, I'm I might go in afterwards and do more explaining because I'm now I'm an old explainer. Um, I'm down for that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm frustrated that that 
I'm frustrated at the wrongness of those readings. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I didn't know about, but, um, but also it's kind of what, it's kind of what these books start to do is like invite you to be recursive. And so yeah. just be recursive in another way that seems right to you when you're writing the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's right. Uh, yeah. I mean, th this book was super recursive because it was like, I actually realized while I was talking about the idiot, how much the idiot was about depoliticization, that there's that there's that line where Sidon learns that there's government majors and they're called gov jocks. And she's like, huh, are those people gonna be our rulers? And then she doesn't really think about it or talk about it. And then I was just watching like Kavanaugh's testimony where he's like, oh, I busted my butt to get on the basketball team. And I was like, oh my God, these people are gonna, you know, they're gonna roll back row and those people are our rulers. And like, and Christine Blasey Ford, became like an academic psychologist and I became a writer and Celine is going to become you know whatever I, I guess she's also going to become a writer a literature person as she thinks of herself and like that's what the book is about what's more political than that is how people are ste steered away from politics so I it was recursive in that I was trying to go back I and then I realized you know I, I I didn't make that clear to myself let alone to other people so I can't you know fault other people for not getting this thing so I kind of like almost felt like I had to write the whole book again, but um, yeah. But the other thing, and then I'll let you get back to the other people. I'm just gonna butt in for a second, but like, oh, but but the other thing about that is that the book is so playful and you in this conversation are so, I don't um, like, you are not gonna make any clear lines about the distinction between you and your character. And readers often have a difficult time, even, even when an author tries to make that really, um, like upfront and clear, they, yeah, they wanna, yeah. you know, but you want to be engaged in that complexity of like, mm -hmm. of, of, and the reality of, of how writing works. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's, there's other, there's other kinds of, but for, I don't know. I, I was just talking, I just did another event now with a novelist who really like invents things. And she's like, she has this quote from Toni Morrison that I don't feel like I'm writing unless I'm actually like making things up. And I was just thinking like, I, I know people, I know novelists who feel like they don't, they don't want to write about the way that things really are. And it, it's almost like, they're like, why should I feel limited to just the way that things happen to be? But I feel actually censored by having to make things like, why do I have to make things up? Like, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna mess up the science experiment. You know, like, I wanna know how did I end up like this? Like, how did I end up with these ideas? And it was really important for me to reconstruct, like not to give myself opportunities that I wouldn't have had then to know things because I wanna, I wanna know how knowledge is formed. And it's not like, you know, it's not like I'm actually so interested in myself, but I'm the one where I have all the data. And so like that, it, it, that's really what the, yeah, what the project was. I see this question, which is how does it feel to write such a deeply, personal book which is like not great it's like it's not, not my first choice I mean but it is my first choice because I did it but like I I have a I don't know I, I I've been reading a lot of psychoanalytic criticism over the past years I read a lot of Alice Miller I read some of Alice Miller's um analyses of different writers from their biographies and how they wrote about them and it's like, she's like, she acknowledges that, the, you know, she's talking about Kafka and Virginia Woolf and James Joyce and Proust. And she's like, you know, of course these writers are all geniuses and they do these very beautiful things, but they ultimately, they, 
they protected their parents. You know, they like, they idealized their parents or they idealized power in some way. They didn't allow themselves to tell the truth. And I actually feel like I got to a certain point and I, I, I consumed a lot of bad information through reading novels that not that I thought that they were true, but just that novels kind of filled in my repertoire of what I thought was possible and how I thought thinking works and what, you know, even what my idea of propriety is and what's shameful and, and what's not. And I just feel like all of those things are, are kind of skewed by, uh, I don't know, I, I just, it was important for me to be, to be transparent. Um, sorry, there's like a party in the next room. People go find. I don't think it's coming through for us at all. Okay, all right. I just, it's, feel I just hear the guffaw. More celebrated, right? All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, should we go through one of these? Um, all right. Gap between intellectual and social emotional maturity. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, as Sumi observes, there is a there is humor in the enormous gap between intellectual and social and emotional maturity, and that gap is extremely big. And and I mean, it's built into the college curriculum because, like, you're I don't know, Celine really. I, I think a lot of immigrant kids have you know, like I, I wanted to get straight A's. I want like I wanted to know how to live and. And school is where they're teaching you things. So I was like, great, I'm gonna like know all of this and I'll be set. But they don't actually teach you like how to live, which is why not? You know, like why, why, why did I learn that much about you know the chemical process of photosynthesis and not really that much about how to metabolize human relationships or what children owe their parents or you know just like the the you know how to how to get how to think about changing age going from one age to another age and that death is at the end of it and whether to have a family and how like why why don't we talk about that why don't we talk about death more like I um I I do think it's it's some kind of like sort of pernicious it's related to the patriarchy to that like hierarchy of knowledge and separating minds and bodies and and it it creates very lopsided people um which i guess is funny uh so that's good good for comic novelists um i love both these novels in the second novel i found Stalin relatable but there were times when i found her choices and thoughts unlikable did you consider developing some of Stalin's less likable choices i don't know if it's like developing i definitely so i I wanted this book to go to a sensitivity reader because I, I see this book as a product of a very toxic time. I think that, you know, Céline, I, I was at school in a very toxic time. I internalized a lot of toxic ideas. I think Céline even internalized some toxic ideas that I don't know that I even had, but I, you know, that I, I she's, she's, a, she's in a very toxic place and she, she reaches some conclusions that I don't agree with now but it was very important for me to show that those were the only conclusion, like that was the conclusion that she would have drawn based on the input that she had. And I, it definitely did not, it not only didn't occur to me, but it was like counter to the project of the book to have her reach sort of like conclusions that I agree with more. So like, I actually, I was like, I want the most woke Zoomer I can find to like 
and this was a service that Penguin had. It's it's not called Sensitivity Read. It's called Authenticity Read. It's and not you, called Woke um, Zoomer. Yeah, it's, it's a WokeZoomer.com. It's like an ESSA app. <laughs> and um, and I and I wrote this letter and I explained, you know, like this is someone who's in a toxic time. She reaches these conclusions. I don't want the reader to necessarily feel like they have to like agree with or like love everything that she thinks of, of all the conclusions that she reaches. But I want to know if there's anywhere in the book where it's um, you either think that you can't understand how she got to some point or it's like so unlikable that it just like jerks you out of the book. And um, she was like, oh, I understand from your letter that like you, you did a lot of things that are that are um, supposed to make you feel bad, but you did it on purpose. I don't know what you did on purpose and what you did uh, by accident. So I'm just going to list all of them. And then, you know, most of them actually were on purpose. And I, I didn't end up changing that. I did end up changing a few things. It was, I was, it was happy that I did that process, but yeah. But yeah, no, I didn't think about making her more likable. Deborah asked, are there writers who you like who have no humor in their fiction? And the answer to that is, um, I don't think so. No, it's, it's, I mean, that's a conversation that Selin and Svetlana have um, where they're like, can someone be smart and not be funny? And Svetlana's like, yeah, of course. And Selin's like, I just don't think so. I, I, I do have a really hard time with writing that's not funny at all. That's, um, yeah. So I guess the answer to that is no. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you. Oh yeah, question about Ferrante. Yes, I was so influenced by Elena Ferrante and the Neapolitan novels, especially um, when I was in Italy having that uh, experience with the political stuff that was going on. I reread the, I think it's the third one or maybe the second one, the um, Those Who Leave and Those Who Stay where she's on book tour. So she's sort of promoting her first novel which is this autobiographical novel about this kind of like shitty thing that happens to her with her crush where she ends up being like raped by her crush's dad but she doesn't call it rape and nobody thinks of it that way and they call it the risque pages and she's like why do all these interviews end up being about the risque pages and like she gets like two different response one one guy tells her oh I don't think your book is risque it's not as bad as Henry Miller those people haven't read Henry Miller this is like an old guy and then he like assaults her in an elevator and the other response that she gets is, um, these are two, two negative responses that she gets a lot of positive responses, mostly from younger women. But then she gets another response, which is from, this is happening at 1968 or right after 1968. And it's the, you know, the, the height of the student political movement and the workers movement. And her friend is like, you know, you did a great job with your novel. You did what you could, but this is not the time for writing novels. And like novels cannot really do anything important now. And I realized that I had, I was, I was promoting the idiot at, at that point. And I realized that I had felt both of those things to some extent. I felt some kind of criticism of there was no sex in your book. Your book wasn't sexy enough. It wasn't like these other books that had more sex in them that were better. And I also felt you wrote a book that's about, you know, a teen girl's crush at Harvard. That's so, you know, why did you write about this solipsistic thing that has nothing to do with anything that's going on? And um, actually, and that, that was part of my realization of like, um, I don't know, that was part of it, the, the, my, my reading of second wave feminism and my comprehension of the very basic message that the personal is political, which I was obviously I heard many times, but I hadn't completely understood it. I really, I really got that from Elena Ferrante. And also 
the relationship between um, the two friends in the Neapolitan novels, the um, the narrator who's a writer and the other Lila, Lena and Lila, um, I thought about that relationship a lot. And um, I think it did inform the friendship with Svetlana, the relationship with Svetlana in the book. Um, are we, how are we doing for time? We're getting there. I keep getting expecting there. Peter to pop back up, but he hasn't. So maybe you can do one more. Okay. Oh, thank you. These are so great. <laughs> okay. Okay. People are so engaged and interested in the way this that you're is such a great audience. Yeah, I just want to yeah. talk to these people all day. I like the question about whether men can be just as vulnerable. Yes. Yes, I do feel that. Um, this book was very much from the women's perspective. And this is kind of ties into the sexual encounters that we would today call date rape. I, oh, have I received any blowback from not explicitly acknowledging the violence of these encounters? You know, I haven't. The only form of blowback I've received is people not understanding that they were violent. <laughs> so I guess if that counts as blowback then, yeah. But like we didn't have, that was, we didn't have that language. So part of the game of it or the, was of the, of the puzzle of writing the book was portraying it in such a way that now we would understand it as date rape, but you know, she wouldn't have thought of it. I mean, that, that particular, um, that's based on an experience, the one with the, with the guy in Turkey. And I, I didn't think of it that way until Me Too really. Um, yeah, the thing about men, I, I, I was thinking about, you know, I wrote this book and I got in the spirit of reading this book in this very kind of like feminist, kind of like almost lesbian separatist, um, mood of like um where I was kind of like oh I spent all of this time overvaluing men and relationships with men and the kind of flip side of that that I realized more and more as I was writing was kind of like what's the man's experience of this because like they're not it's not like oh Selene is trying to follow some script but like you know the male characters are just like transparently expressing themselves and their desires. You know, they're doing all those things because they think they have to do them. They're under a lot of pressure to do, um, even the ones who aren't, even the people who are acting kind of aggressive are doing that for a whole series of reasons that um, are like super over overdetermined. And there's, there's a question, there's a question at the, near the beginning of the book where she starts to think to herself, like, Ivan, is he just an evil person? Is he just a villain? Who is this guy in this book? Like, is he just an evil person? And I don't think she reaches any insight about that. But as I was writing it, I was really thinking about um, Selin and Ivan and all of the men in the book. They're all kind of in this system of patriarchy that's just brutal. It's brutal. It's brutal to women. It treats women like shit. But it's kind of like, it treats women like shit, but it already treated the little boys like shit. Like, I feel like the, the horrible thing happened to the boys when they were children and the horrible thing happens to women a little bit later. And so like, who has it better? I, I don't really, nobody, nobody, no, nobody's a winner in this. But um, yeah, I, I, it's not something that I got to explore a lot in this book. And I, I would like to write and to think about that. I also, you know, one thing that I realized this kind of like compulsory heterosexuality, like realizing that actually I'm I'm happier in in lesbian queer queer relationships than I was in the straight relationships. It's not like oh you know men were so terrible. It's like the roles that we were in were so constraining. And I I realized being in a same sex relationship, the extent to which 
in a heterosexual relationship, it's very easy to not see the other person as a person. Like I, I would see the man as the man and not as a person just like me. And it changed my expectations of how that person should act and how I should act toward them. And it was all this kind of like elaborate theater that I didn't, I wasn't conscious of at all. And I feel like one of the gifts of like escaping from that has been being able to look back at those relationships and see personhood there that it's also been a little bit sad to see personhood there that I now realize like, oh, that person was actually, there was a lot of vulnerability there that I was not able to see. Cause I was like, you have to be the man. Like it, it, and I, I didn't think of myself as someone who, who had those kinds of ideas about masculinity, but yeah, I, I was. <laughs> um, yeah, journey. Thank you so much for all these questions. I wish we could stay here all night. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. It's been a delight to talk to you. I really wish we could get that drink. We have to make that happen sometime. Well, anytime you're around, just let me know. I would know. love that. I would of love that. And you too. And when you're in New York, such a out. pleasure. I would be delighted. Wow. There was so much love in the chat tonight. So many amazing questions. Thank you both. The drinks. Where are the drinks? Um, <laughs> Y'all get a rain check. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, I look forward to that. And thanks all of you in the audience for joining us. Thanks, um, audience. You are so great. Yeah. So freaking awesome tonight. Um, so check out the links, buy books. Also, I have posted links to personal websites. Check them out. You want to keep up on both their works. Tonight's event has been made Ooh. possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our late founder, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, a publishing program, and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So thank you, everyone. Please be well, be safe. We hope to see you all again soon. Elif, I'm going to let you have the last word. Thank you so much. This has been such a delight. Thank you, audience. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you, Peter. Everyone, buy lots of books from City Lights. Good night, everyone. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.